thank you for joining us again for the Bonsai Wire podcast. Today we're speaking with Kaya Mooney, and we're going to talk about his time in Japan and probably some some about the time before Japan and maybe a little time after. So let's let's jump into that conversation. Um, I just want to start by asking, like, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of give your idea of you know what an introduction looks like for you right now? Sure. All right. So um, I've always been like very interested in plants. Of course, I think most people who are into bonsai can say that. Um, my grandfather owns like uh, an antique store when I was very very young, and he was a comic book artist. So they're always just kind of like old like Japanese and Chinese arts kind of going into the house. And uh, I always kind of knew what bonsai was, but I didn't really have much of like a grasp on it other than like it's a plant in a pot, of course. And uh, one day from like a garage sale, he brought back a bunch of old like ABS journals. There was a bunch of ABS journals and some other uh, miscellaneous ones. I can't recall off the bat, but they're um, they're still at my family's house right now. And I remember like looking through these magazines and that was kind of what like initially like sparks the bug, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And um, th- that was, I-, I really can't, I think I was like maybe 12 or 13 when that happened. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was quite a while ago. And uh, it was always kind of like in like a side interest of mine, but I just never really seemed to find the time. And then eventually over time, I found like a bonsai nursery kind of near to my house. It was about like 25 minutes away. It was called uh, Dragon Tree Bonsai Nursery there in Palm City, Florida. And I actually ended up working there for about like a summer when I was in, uh, I think when I was in like my first year of college. And uh, I worked there for a little bit. And throughout that time, I met a couple people that had trained in Japan. And uh, Juan, Juan Andrade actually lived with uh, my good friend Seth at the time. And I was constantly going over to Seth's house. So that was uh, kind of like the first person who introduced the idea of studying in Japan, that it wasn't just this kind of like foreign, like dream. It was like something you could actually do something knowing someone that had actually done it made it seem a lot more doable, I guess you could say. Mm. So of course there's a lot of in between that, but, um, that was kind of like the main introduction. And then I ended up going to a, um, to a, uh, bonsai South Florida convention with Seth and Juan. And that was actually where I met, uh, Boone. And I, uh, we had dinner with Boone one night and I was telling him how I really, really wanted to, I I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do bonsai for a living or professionally at that point, but I really, really wanted to study it like at a high level. And to my knowledge at that time, there wasn't too many places you could go in Florida. And I was kind of at a crossroads. I was studying, um, computer science, like in college and kind of starting to realize that I didn't perhaps like it as much as I thought I had two years ago. And, um, I was talking with him and he kind of offered me the idea of doing, uh, like a trial out of his place. So basically the idea was I go out there for, I think like, uh, two or three weeks. And then at the end of that, we all talk and see if it's a good fit. And if it's a good fit, I get to go back to Florida for a month or so, tie up any loose ends and then, uh, go out to Boone's. So I spent about, I think around like a little over a year and a half, like a year and eight months at Boone's. And, um, that's where we met. Yeah. That's where Jonas and I met. And, um, after that period, I decided not decided, but I made contact with a, uh, person, Owen Reich, who studied over here at Koken and, uh, everything just kind of worked out well. And I ended up over here in Japan. So there's a lot of stuff in between that, of course, but in a 
30 seconds or less. That's kind of how it happened. <laughs> and how old were you at the point where you went to Boone's? Uh, I had just turned 21 after I was out there for like a month. It was a very lonely 21st birthday, I remember. <laughs> I, I, went, I went to the, uh, the Norton Modern Art Museum by myself. Um, but yeah, I uh, just turned 21 about a month or two after I'd moved out there. Gotcha. And then how long have you been in Japan now? Uh, next month on the 6th will be two years. Two years, okay. Yep, two years. Like, since you had some experience working in in Boons. California with Boone and then mm -hmm. in Japan, what are what are some of the big differences, especially as you look at the trees? I mean, obviously, the trees <laughs> are very different, but what, like, what does the work look like different, um, the kind of stuff that you were working on? Um, I, I'd say, like, one thing, if I can say one thing more than anything else, uh, Boone's style is he liked to teach everything very black and white. There's this, this, this. You do thing ABC. Uh, that's not the case in Japan at all. Everything's very like kind of, uh, sorry, if there's an ambulance that you guys are picking up right now, <laughs> um, <laughs> everything is very case by case here is one thing I've noticed. Definitely. Got it. I'll say um, more so about that. that. Uh, you know, this, uh, my, my senpai, my Okasan, there's kind of like a thing where like all, I, I probably asked him a good couple thousand questions since I've been here in Japan. And I'd say <laughs> like maybe 99% of the answers to those questions have been like, oh, usually you do it like this, but it's case by case. Like there's no real, there's no real way to say like you have to do this when this happens with bonsai. Of course, there's like too many factors and variables to really kind of say that there's like a surefire way to do something. Of course, there are like some really good kind of base foundations we can follow like for, uh, repotting and growing stuff from seedlings and cuttings and kind of earlier on stuff but once you get into these really really old refined trees like they react a lot differently than i think stuff that we do have in the west but even then like the that's another thing it's just kind of case by case there's so many different ways to work on a tree and there's so many different ways it's going to respond to what you're doing climate age what soil you're using all of those things they all kind of have a different factor in how the tree is going to react to something. So that, like, if I could pick just one thing, I'd say that would be the biggest difference. Um, of course, yeah, just everything's very case by case over here. Sure, yeah, I don't know if it's the same, but I remember when I first uh, picked up John Naka's book at the very beginning, there was, mm -hmm. I think there was a really concise list of 100 rules and I quickly like <laughs> rewrote those into my notebook and I don't think I've looked at them since. Like they just don't mm. apply. Like obviously you need to think through these things, but like even in our yard here, it's like they, everything is, uh, is up for grabs. Like er everything is an option. We mostly mm -hmm. want to follow these general guidelines, but you know, there's never a time in which we don't break every one of those almost on a oh, daily yeah, basis, you know, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Such and if you don't break case. those rules, the bonsai tend to be a little bit boring, I've found. Sometimes too much repetition can be a bad thing, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And tell tell me a little bit like uh your how's your Japanese after after two years in Japan? Are you uh, mostly able to function? <laughs> I, I can function enough, but it's definitely not like um it's not at a super high level. I can uh you know, I can communicate with my teacher Oyakata as we call him. Uh, and very basic broken Japanese. I can go order drinks and get food and stuff when I'm out. I don't have trouble like asking for directions, but, um, 
it really depends on the situation. There's certain times where I'm just completely lost and I look like a little kid who doesn't know how to speak for himself. <laughs> and of course, like one thing with uh, in Japan, there's a lot of like dialects, like some of the old people, how they speak over here is you cannot understand it much at all. Sure. Um, yeah. So can there, you there, give us any good Kansai Ben? Ah, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But there, yeah, there's been quite a few situations where, um, you know, Japanese is a language like uh, it's quite simple as far as like the sounds. There's not a lot of different sounds like we have in English, of course. So you have a lot of uh, sounds that will kind of mean different things, like words that sound the same phonetically, but have completely different meaning if the context is fitting for it. Like, obviously, hashi is like chopsticks, but it also means bridge. There's a lot of little things like that. And for something like that, uh, I guess you're not really going to get yourself in very much trouble with it. But there's some words that you could definitely get yourself in a little <laughs> bit of trouble if you mix them up. Gotcha. And uh, talk a little about your relationship with some of the other um, apprentices or your teacher. Like what what is that? What does that relationship look like uh, where you stand at this point? Uh, so currently. Uh, the uh, Myokasan, who is. Um, he recently, he, he left, uh, he went like independent while I was still around kind of when I first started, I think around like cocoa food time or something like that, a little bit after it. Um, so he comes to the nursery to help out during like kind of times where there's like a lot of work going on, like show season, uh, take on 10, cocoa food, repotting season, sometimes decandling if there's like a lot of work then. And, um, we have a pretty good relationship, of course. Um, I, I don't know if I'd say we're like friends <laughs> or not, but uh, I respect his work a lot, and he's a very, very nice person, and he's been uh, incredibly uh, helpful since I got here. Um, as far as like uh, relationship with my oyakata, like uh, my teacher, um, I'd say it's like pretty good. It's definitely strange sometimes. Like uh, it's it's not anything like a relationship you'd have with like a boss or a teacher in the West. So that can be uh, just a little different. Sometimes there's a lot more uh, respect that goes into it and not too much question asking. Of course, sometimes you just kind of go along with whatever's happening, even if it doesn't really seem right. Um, but he, he, he's a good person. He, I think he really kind of wants the best for us. It doesn't uh, sometimes it's hard to see that, but he's been very helpful as far as like learning things since I've been here. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And how we, often do you? How often in a in a work week do you see him or interact with him? Oh, he's he's at the nursery every single day. Okay. Um, yeah, he plays more of kind of like a managerial role at this point, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, he's at the nursery every day, and uh, you know, a lot of the stuff with him, like I, I think maybe he's shown me like how to set a branch on a bonsai tree or something like that, like maybe once or twice. But a lot of the learning is just kind of like uh, various disgrunts and grunts of approval and disapproval and you kind of figuring out what that means. <laughs> right. Uh, right. It's very Japanese style to a degree. Uh, it's kind of, it doesn't sound very stressful, but it is kind of stressful when you don't exactly know what said grunt means. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. Yep. I remember uh, with Michael early on in my apprenticeship, he would come in when I was done with the tree and he said, oh, it's looking pretty good. Uh, I can tell you've got a lot of work to do on it still. It's like, <laughs> wait, no, I was I was <laughs> <Yeah>. done. 
yeah, that's never a really good feeling. Yeah, right. It's like, okay, well, we're going to take that back to the drawing board nine more times, you know, and then yeah. finally. <laughs> yeah, the best thing from him I found is uh, when he doesn't make any sound. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, when he comes in and just kind of like looks at a tree and like walks out, it doesn't really feel right, but uh, it's kind of, it usually means better than some other things can. Got it, got it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, talk about like one, like what's the worst mistake you've made on a tree in your time there? Ah, uh, ah, I remember one thing. He, uh, I, I'm sure there's something definitely worse than this, but something more recent. Uh, he brought a tree back, I think from a customer's house or a buying trip or something. And typically, when he brings trees back to the nursery, I'm sure Jonas is familiar with this or whenever whenever a tree comes back to the nursery from a show customer whatever it is usually the first thing that happens is it gets watered and um you know i just kind of did this uh he told me to water one of the trees but not the other one but he didn't explicitly say like don't water this tree so i just kind of <laughs> watered both of them like out of habit and i found out he actually wanted us to put that tree into the tokonoma because a customer was coming over in like 10 minutes <laughs> Oh, um, so yeah, so there, that, that was probably like the most yelling I've heard recently, but I'm sure there's <laughs> been, I'm sure there's been something worse than that. I just can't recall it, or maybe I've blacked it out at this point. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. Um, but that, that was probably the most recent thing. Um, you know, he, he definitely gets mad at those situations, but it's not like go home to America, I want to kill you kind of mad, but it definitely, uh, it, it sticks with you. You don't make that same mistake twice. So we'll sure, say that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, you, you don't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably the most recent thing I'd say. And how big a crew about, do you have now? Sorry, what's that, Jonas? How big, how big a crew do you have now at uh, Kokaian? Uh, right now, it's me, uh, Michael McTeague. He is from Canada. He's been here uh, just about a year now. He started last year in November, actually. And then we also have uh, we have a part time worker, a Japanese kid. He's in his uh, early 20s. He comes in not super often, but just kind of when we need extra help. And then other than that, uh, Maoka-san will come in when needed during busy seasons. Um, but for the most part, just me and Michael and then the uh, Japanese part time worker. Oh, OK. Got it. So at this point, how much are you kind of directing the flow, you know, versus like taking taking all your commands, all your orders? You know, are you are you able to kind of be a little more independent at this point, trying to figure out, you know, what needs to be done and what work needs to be focused on? Uh, base, it kind of depends on the work, definitely. My my teacher, my Oyakata, he still likes to give kind of like base orders, of course, um, but. Like, he'll kind of tell you, like, a general idea, like, this is kind of what I want. Like, maybe he'll set you up with an angle or something on, like, a tree when you're working on it. Um, <clears throat> but then kind of the rest is up to you unless he sees that you're making what looks to be, like, a big mistake. Um, and then as far as, like, maintenance work and other stuff, uh, it just kind of depends. Like, if it's a very valuable tree or the tree is really weak, I've found he kind of uh kind of hangs out behind you a little bit to make sure nothing bad is going to happen which i can completely understand right um but yeah i definitely feel a lot more i wouldn't say if it's independence but it seems like he trusts me a little bit more than he did two years ago which is how things so. should be going yeah i'd hope yeah. so too <laughs> i'd be a little scared if that weren't the case um 
Yeah, it definitely depends on the work that you're doing, I'd say. The work and the tree, who owns it. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. Those are all very big factors, definitely. How close you are to a show or if it's, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, if you're if you're close to, like, if the tree's going in the show or it's going to be at the sales table and that's, like, in a day or two, he definitely uh, kind of stands behind you and blows smoke a little bit, but uh-huh. keeps you on your feet, <laughs> keeps you on your feet. And other than culturally, what are what's the skill that you've like quickly realized you needed to develop the most uh, in the nur- in in, in the, the nursery, nursery or just yeah in the nursery? Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, if the sky if your oyakata says the sky is purple, the sky is purple. Mm. <laughs> um, I wouldn't even say that is like a bad thing. It's just like uh, you know things are. As far as like working for someone, uh, the relationship you have is very different over here. Like you just kind of, you don't question things. You just do what is said. And obviously like coming from a Western perspective, sometimes there might be a little bit more discussion with stuff before like an idea is made or something like that. But that does not happen over here. Generally speaking, there are some times where he'll ask for like an opinion on stuff, but a lot of times when um, when that happens, it's just kind of looking more so for like agreement than like discussion. Um, so I, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest things. Um, everything else is like very small, but once you kind of make that switch with like the just kind of go along with things, uh, everything else kind of like falls into place. Got it. Got it. And were there any like physical skills that you felt like way behind on, you know, wiring or? branch setting or any anything like that um i i would say like wiring from an aesthetic standpoint definitely like took me a lot of catching up on um boone was really like when i was at boone's he was really good at kind of hammering in like uh wiring placement and like making sure your wire is like really evenly placed and looks really nice and works well from like a kind of you know structural standpoint uh but i didn't really get too much time doing like fine wiring or just kind of wiring strictly from like an aesthetic standpoint Hmm. uh so i think that definitely took like a lot of time to kind of catch up on that yeah and what does that like what does that look like uh like expound a little bit more on that the the structural versus the aesthetic well of course when you're doing like structural wiring you're just like one of the main things you're doing is just trying to you know set angles you want to get your branches in the right position and you're kind of thinking like okay i want this to look good maybe in like five to seven years i want this part of the tree to grow into this area and i want this branch to be set at this angle so that when this branch above it grows out it kind of you know matches up and everything sets into place um but when you're wiring for like a show or you're wiring for a tree to be sold or something like that there are some shortcuts that uh get taken definitely and even if we're not really talking about the shortcuts. Um, it's just a little bit different when you're, you know, wiring a tree that has already had all that structure set and all of those things done. And you just kind of need to, uh, to make it look that extra 10%. So it's ready for show or ready for sale or ready for a customer or whatever it may be. It's a very, you know, it's a very different style of work. And like, (laughs) I found like just one bud being in like the wrong place sometimes can definitely like offset the whole tree and make it look, uh, not, not ready, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah, I was looking on your Instagram, and uh, you know, it seems like you've got some really great uh, 
like finish work. Um, I really like your, um, uh, the attention to detail in that regard. And I think that's partly the, the nursery that you're in really emphasizes that work. Yeah. It's definitely a reflection of the nursery. Yeah. What, Although uh, I... oh, good. Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, what was the thing that you least expected culturally about Japan? And then also like your work. <laughs> I mean, we talked a little bit about the, the sky's purple, you know, that, that, but like just, just to generally, what did you not expect that, that was the big one? What did I not expect? Uh, just yeah, about like the nursery or about a J- uh, Japan in general? Oh, Japan in general. Yeah, let's go there. Uh, they still use fax machines over here. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, uh, that, that was definitely, that was definitely unexpected. Um, I guess like coming from Florida, we don't have like when I came over here to be an apprentice, that was the first time I actually went to Japan. Okay. Um, seeing like how well built the infrastructure was like really was, you know, I, I expected that. I knew those things. Of course, like I read a lot about that and saw a lot of photos, but. Once you see like how well everything works the first time, it's crazy coming from America. Like I grew up in a town that did not have buses unless it was you were going to elementary school. That was it. And yeah, high school and yeah. middle school. But we had next to no public transportation unless you count like taxis. That's about it. So like seeing all of these systems in place that just run so well and efficiently was really, uh, really crazy to see for the first time. And how big is the town that you're living in now? Um, it's like a it's a fairly sized metropolitan area. It's called uh, Ikeda, and okay. it's um it's like a kind of suburban area about thirty minutes from uh, Osaka Umeda, which is like the downtown area by train. Um, yeah. But it's a nice little area. I like it quite a bit. It's uh, it, you're not like completely in the countryside like uh, some places are, which you know, has its benefits, but personally, I like being able to get around a little bit easier. It's very convenient. All right. It's kind of nice being on the edge where you can kind of have the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's really nice. We, there's like a, there's a big, um, there's a big mountain actually, like kind of maybe 15 minute ride from my uh, apartment where I stay at. And it's, a, uh, it's really cool to go see. You can actually see like some, I, nothing like show. <laughs> like show quality or anything like that. But there's some like Yamadori up in the mountains. So it's kind of fun to see sometimes. Oh yeah. Fun. That's great. Well, I have one, uh, barn burner for the end, but Jonas, what, uh, what ideas do you have or thoughts do you have? When I think of what it's like, um, to get the opportunity to talk to someone working in Japan, I imagine the first thing that comes to mind with people when they, find out is always, oh, the trees, the trees. What's it like to work on the trees? And I know you got to work on some, what we think of as nice trees when you were at Boone's Place, but do tell us and feel free to add as much detail as you'd like. (laughs) What's it like working on the trees over there? I know you recently worked on that uh, Kicho bonsai, that uh, Hinoki. Ah, yes. Spectacular material. So tell us all, what what has it been like? Uh, You know, it's it's a really... It's definitely a really special feeling. I, I one thing I will say is I don't know if this is good or bad, but you get a little like um, desensitized. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I re- I think I listened to the podcast. Um, sorry, I forget I forget his name. Oh, with actually, Adam. But, 
With Adam, yes. It's with Adam at Taisho. And he said the same thing. We spoke about that a little bit afterwards uh, via message. And we both completely agreed with it. Like after you're here for a while, you get like desensitized. Like you don't, you don't actually say it, but you'll look at a tree and you'll think in your head, you're like, oh, this is all right. But you know, it's not that good. And you're thinking like in your head, you're like, this is like, you know, this is a $7,000 tree back in the US or something. This is <laughs> right, this is right. a really nice shimpaku that someone's grown for like 20, 30 years. This is a fantastic little piece of material. I'd kill to have this like back home. But, you know, being around all these nice trees for on a daily basis, you really, really get like desensitized. And it's, it's a really strange feeling because sometimes I'll like, uh, you know, I'll be working all day and you just kind of go, um, you know, some things like doing some maintenance work is, it's very easy to kind of go into robot mode, which is kind of like a good thing. Um, it gets the work done a lot quicker. And obviously you still pay attention to like differences in the work if you're working on like a weaker part of the tree or something like that. Um, but it's very easy to just go into that mode and you kind of like forget like, wow, I'm working on this like Kicho Hinoki that was collected from the mountains, like around the first world war. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> and, uh, you definitely have to like, uh, step back. Like I remember when I was working on that tree, I didn't really think about it too much. Um, and then I set it back out on the bench and it just like instantly started raining. Like after we put it back out there and I was just kind of looking at it and had one of those like moments like, wow feels kind of strange but yeah you definitely get desensitized like um you definitely get desensitized like being over here and seeing all these um all these nice trees on a daily basis it's kind of nice because it definitely like uh you know heightens your senses and of course if you're trying to do uh bonsai for a living like in the future you 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 don't want to get like too uh, emotionally attached to trees like um like if you're going to invest money into something and you need to make a profit off of it in the future you don't want to like like something just for the sake of liking it you should it should have like a positive attribute or feature or something that can be brought out of the tree in the future so i i think that like the kind of getting desensitized to some degree is a little bit of a good thing but sometimes it's a little sad i guess what about from a technical perspective i know the level of the cutback you have to do the level of the detail wiring is just we just don't have the material to offer opportunities to learn or study or even appreciate that on very many trees over here has that been kind of fun to engage yeah it has actually it's been very fun to engage um it, it it definitely does frighten me a little bit like um of course a lot of the work we have here doesn't always transfer as well to some of the trees that we have um in the united states right now i hope in the future of course that will change as time goes on but um i've definitely been trying to kind of uh do a lot of side projects as well like i have a lot of uh grafting projects and stuff like that a couple like shimpaku and ume and things like that that i'm working on i don't i don't really uh really post them so much like on online at all but i definitely take photos of them to kind of like track their progress oh that's cool but it's yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so how like um how much have you thought about the this disparity or discrepancy when you think about, you know, going out on your own independently back in America? Like you've spent you've spent all this time working on amazing trees. Like how mm. how do you plan on translating that back here where quite honestly they're pretty hard to come by <laughs> and they're probably um, way more expensive, you know, that's the, the oh, cost definitely. Of, cost of ownership. Are we still I definitely say like a majority of the work we do is definitely on like refined trees, but we do get some kind of opportunities to work on 
different levels of material, which helps quite a bit. And like I was saying to Jonas prior, um, I do have like some projects, like I'm grafting some Shimpaku and Ume and I have a couple Trident Maples that I'm developing just like from the trunk. So that, that kind of work really uh, helps out a lot. And of course, although like we don't really do as much of that work, my Oyakata can still give advice on those things, which is very helpful. Um, so it definitely frightens me a little bit, but at the end of the day, I'm, uh, I'm not too scared. I think anyone studying in Japan, they're going to have like a strong point and they're going to have a weak point and it's really just kind of up to you those first like year, two, three years that you're back, you need to kind of focus on that. Whatever your weak point is, you should kind of take an effort to work on that. Like if I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, work. A lot of experience working on like uh, Yamadori trees and doing like initial bending and stuff like that. Like that's something I really want to focus on when I get back in the future. So I wouldn't say it is a bad thing. It's just kind of something you have to focus on in the future. Yeah. I think that's something else that's really hard to convey to people who haven't either seen these trees in person, let alone worked with them, is the scope of the work. Um, mm. How long does it take you to work on a really refined tree? Like how many... <sighs> hours or days might a single project take i it it takes a while yeah it's not like <laughs> it's not like you're doing a workshop or you're doing like initial bending and you can just kind of get like um of course with a workshop you have a time constraint to work within and then uh if you're doing like just initial bending or trying to get bone set like um you know you want to get everything properly set but you don't need to spend too much time like doing a lot of the detailing which um yeah it takes a lot of time one thing i really want to do like the next uh tree that he gives me to work on we're doing a lot of like fall maintenance stuff right now so i haven't had as much uh workshop time but the next tree i get i really want to try and set like a like a timer while i'm working on it because of course mm. we always we always get called to do various other jobs and maybe i look back at like the first photo i took and i go really that took me like that much time but you have to realize like okay, you got called to go help out this customer. You had to go take pull needles from this tree. You had to go clean up the floor, or pick up something or take out the trash. You have to do all these tasks in between. So it's really, uh, you're constantly getting up, sitting back down, figuring out where you were, getting your head back into it. So it's really difficult to like say exactly how much time it took, but it doing that detail work definitely takes a lot of time. It's a very, uh, it's a very different ball game to say the least. So would a juicy project be closer to four hours, eight hours, or 12 hours of wiring? What's that? Uh, a really juicy project, a really refined tree. Like, do you think in total it would be like four hours of wiring, eight hours, 12 hours? I'd say definitely it could take up to 12 hours, if not longer, depending on like the size of the tree, how much detailing you're doing, et cetera. Um, yeah, of course, there's a big difference if you're doing it like for sale or for show. Obviously, if it's like, for show, we try to use a little bit less wire. So, um, maybe, you know, a little bit more time, like kind of constantly looking at the tree and like checking on it while it's back out, but maybe a little bit less time, like actually doing wire for that kind of thing. Yeah. I keep wondering what it's going to be like over here in the States to get more of the community used to working on these really advanced or refined trees because you kind of put your finger on it. We've got kind of a workshop mentality where, Oh, projects just take four hours because that's how long workshops are. Oh, I'm really serious. I have a day long workshop and that's how long <laughs> it takes. And yeah. uh, I think we all know it can take a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a lot different. Um, I, 
I mean, the workshops are definitely good. You need that kind of stuff. And for early on material, I think it's really helpful. Like, um, when I, that was one thing I really am like, um, another thing that I'm really like grateful for, like while I was studying out at Boone's, of course, a lot of the stuff we, uh, like focused on was very different. Like they're very kind of alter egos. Um, like what kind of where I'm at now and the type of work that I get to do on a daily basis versus what I was doing, uh, back then. And I'm very grateful for that because it definitely does help fill in like some, um, some kind of bald spots or some blank areas. Um, and one thing that was really nice was I got to see, uh, he did like a lot of workshops. Of course, he had his intensives, but he also did, I forget how often, but I think it was like twice a month. He did the workshops where like a lot of the local BIB people would come in. And it was really helpful, like, um, not just to see the workshops, but how he interacted with the, ah, oh, sorry, I got a computer little update thing right now. Anyways, here I am. Um, it was really interesting to see like how everyone interacted, like how, you know, he interacted with the students, how the students, what kind of questions they would ask. That's another thing that I really like mm, to see. Yeah. Um, because those are always the same. It doesn't matter the person, <laughs> but you know, beginners and people who have only been in bonsai for a year or two. They are always going to ask the same questions. They're going to be afraid of the same stuff. And that was really, uh, yeah, that was really helpful. But, um, those kind of workshops, people were typically bringing in like, younger or less refined material so i think like workshops definitely have a good place for that kind of stuff yeah that's cool i, I think that's very true and what we'll need is to figure out i guess what's the model when uh, there's going to be classes with more and more refined material because i know when it comes to say show prep the tree mm -hmm. has to have been trained and kept healthy for a couple of years the tree has definitely, to be yeah. in the right container and it has to be completely detail wired which might take quite a long time but then yeah. there's the little adjustment and refinement. And so when I think, what would it look like for someone with a really serious tree to get that benefit of working with someone like you to that last mile, it would require all of that other work has already been done. And then you can start imparting. Well, that pad could be a little less dense and that uh, side of the silhouette could be adjusted a little bit because that's where some of the biggest benefits are going to be. But it's going to be an investment to get there. Yes, it will. I think we're headed in the right direction. I've, it definitely seems like um, <clears throat> bonsai in the U.S. is like, of course, you know, I haven't been in the U.S. for about a year now. <laughs> so I can only say from what I've seen online for the most part. But it just kind of seems like um, you're seeing a lot more about bonsai like online, like a lot more on social media, a lot more on websites and news pages and things like that. So. I think with that like added popularity, it will definitely kind of uh, speed up the, of course, you can only go at a certain time frame for the progress of trees, but having more people interested in bonsai, kind of helping out the bonsai economy and stuff like that, I think it'll kind of push everything like in a good direction, definitely. Does that make you excited or think about what you want to do when you get back? It makes me very excited, yes. <laughs> nice. I I hope it's in a a good place when I do come back. Um, as far as uh, like kind of when to go back, I, I'm not too sure. I definitely want to stay over here for like the uh, the full like five years. Um, and I've also thought like um, in the future, like possibly working at Koken like after I finish for a little bit and um, just kind of using Japan as like a home base and doing some traveling work. And then once I have enough money saved up to, um, to you know start like a nursery buy a home and things of that sort uh move back in the future um maybe somewhere 
kind of over by the East Coast, perhaps like Georgia or something like that. I'm from Florida, so I do want to be like um, remotely close to family to some degree, at least be able to hop on a plane or take like a very long car drive home to see them during the holidays. So that's kind of an important thing, but it's still like uh, still a lot to think about, definitely. What do you want us all to have ready for you when you come back uh, several years from now? Like what you've got a lot of people listening to you. What do you want us all to be? Uh, prepared? <laughs> ah, that's hard. I would like to see um, a lot more uh, Shohin Shimpakus being grown. Oh, and I would really like to see a lot of like, not perfect, but just like decent quality um, Japanese maple, tried at maple deciduous trunks, deciduous mm-hmm. trunks. Gotcha. They don't need branches, just trunks. Like, don't worry about the branches. Just get like a decently tapered trunk. Like, um, uh, the, the stuff that I saw at like Dylan's when he was, uh, growing, stuff like that. Like, of course that takes a lot of time. Not everyone can do that, but I think that would, that would really help out. Like, if there were 2000 Japanese maples that looked like the one that I bought from him, not exactly the same, but something around that, that would be, uh, that'd be very nice to see, I think. You taking notes, John? Yep, exactly. <laughs> ah, that's no. right. I I listen to a podcast. John wants to uh, start growing when he finishes, doesn't he? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, we've got uh, a friend that's got forty acres outside of town here in Portland. And wow, so, fantastic! So our plan is to he's going to grow veggies and we're going to grow trees. And so yeah, I'm awesome. My main goal here with my time with Michael is just to really learn his eye. And see, you know, I obviously just the two years is not going to give me the skills that he has, but the, <laughs> but but just training me to see what he wants to see, you know, that's going to be the big. And then you know the likes of Jonas are helping me figure out how to get to that point, like logistically. <laughs> well, those so, are very good people to be around for that. Yeah, I probably will have a few years of figuring out how to make it happen, but <laughs> that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. The stressful part, but definitely the fun part too. Well, I'm curious, Kai, you said Shohin Shimpaku. Uh, why Shohin Shimpaku? I just feel like we don't have enough, you know, like there's a lot of people growing Shimpaku in the U.S., but they're all like, you know, a foot and a half tall. And I just feel like that's <laughs> kind of a really strange size point to be uh, to be making Shimpaku for. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's a very like, um, hmm, uh I don't know. It's a very strange size point. That's all. Maybe it's from being over here with all the shows and stuff. You realize that's kind of like a difficult size to use for a lot of stuff. Very hard. Yeah. Um, but even then, it just like from a scale perspective, it's just like very in between. It's just strange. I think um, Shohin are a good goal just because you can definitely take like a whip and you can make a nice Shohin Shimpaku trunk in like five to seven years and you can grow branches on that in another kind of four to five years and you kind of have the start from like a pretty good bonsai in that time. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. And they're just fun, definitely. They're fun to grow. <laughs> well, I'm writing there notes any, on that too. <laughs> are there any digital like uh, blogs, websites, YouTube? Like, what are you what are you seeing that that other people could watch or see? You know, are are there are there pictures? Like on- yeah um like as far as like learning stuff like online no not so much learning but like to inspire to like is there a are there any artists over there that are doing really good work that have blogs that people could look at or as far as like professionals or apprentices uh well either one just just when you talk about the shimpaku uh like 
Like I'm going to be honest. Uh, John wants thing, to know where he's going to steal pictures <laughs> and then start growing those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We um, all want to know. <laughs> ah, that's a good question. Yeah, because like I follow a few blogs and there's a there's a YouTube that I look at every once in a while, but it's like um, I don't have the inside. Like you've got the uh, inside. Yeah. I, if I'm going to be honest, whenever pretty much like uh, whenever I see like an interesting shimpaku that I could tell was field grown, I save it onto my phone or my computer and i've got like a folder of about probably like a few hundred photos stuff from jonas's blog online eric's blog all that kind of stuff uh i, I well that doesn't I do think, us any good though that's I, yeah i'm sorry <laughs> i wish i could direct you to a source or something but i'm not sure if i really got anything um i of course eric eric's got a lot of stuff on his blog i'm pretty sure um yeah. other yeah. than that i you know i know i definitely have a few things but i I'm a little uh, caught in the headlights. I can't think of anything off top. Sure, sure. We'll we'll circle back to that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I think we're going to take a quick break here and hear from one of our sponsors. Be right back. Are you tired of your antique Chinese bonsai pot looking drab and dull on the shelf? Have you ever lost a competition because your pot had lost its luster? Are you embarrassed to have your friends over because your pot collection has fallen into disrepair? Patina Buster is a new, environmentally friendly solvent that removes hundreds of years of grime and buildup in no time. Just brush it on, wait five minutes, and use a wire brush and power washer to remove. Simple as that. Works better than scrubbing powder, steel wool, and sandblasting. With a single day work, you can restore your entire collection back to the bright and shiny jewel that the potter originally created. All right, let's jump back into the conversation. Well, so tell us mundane details. Walk us through a typical day from rising in the morning to crashing at night. Like, what is the life of a cocaine apprentice these days? Um, I'll say we recently we have it pretty good compared to like how some people did in the past. From what I've heard, um, I know in the past, uh, Jonas, do you know what the show? Shochikobai. I think it's Shochikobai. Yeah. It's like the, oh, uh, yes. yeah. I know. I know exactly what you're the, talking about. Yeah. The plantings with the ume and the pine and the bamboo. So apparently they used to like, um, around New Year's, I guess. I yep. think they used to haul those out, like work from 8 a.m. to like 8 p.m. every day, just doing those like a production line. Um, but we, we have it pretty good now. We start each day like a little bit before 8 a.m. And, um, we finish usually around like five, five thirty, but it, it just kind of depends like on the workload. My oyakata is like very understanding. It's a, Koken is like a relatively like small nursery, the size wise. So as long as there's not like too much going on, um, usually pretty, pretty kind. Uh, that being said, on Monday, I start at six fifteen, and I probably won't get home till about 9 PM. So <laughs> Of course, it just depends. We're going to a to a shohin auction, so I have to work that. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is most that days, a fun day or a stressful day when you get to go to auctions like that? I've never actually been to a shohin auction before, actually. Oh. So, so I'm 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 really excited, of course, but I'm not sure. I've heard shohin people are a little little strict. Um, they're a little crazy. Oh, and are awesome. you going as a buyer or seller? I, I'm going as a worker. <laughs> oh, right, but your nursery. Uh, he's just going to to purchase stuff. Actually, I don't okay. know if he'll purchase anything. Um, but just kind of going to look. It's very close by to the nursery, so it's very convenient. But yeah, that being said, although our days are usually pretty uh pretty 
pretty normal, but um, that day I will be putting in quite quite a few hours to say the least. Yeah. But yeah, so a normal day, uh, we start around like 8 a.m. I usually commute to the nursery uh, just by white by bike. Sometimes I'll walk if it's like raining, so I don't get soaked on the way there. And um, usually, yeah, I'll get there a little bit before 8 a.m. Um, I have like uh, someone, an apprentice under me now, so I don't have to take care of the morning work. But uh, usually what that looked like while I was doing that, you get there, you empty out all of the uh, the ashtrays. It's a really great way to start your morning. <laughs> um, smells lovely. And you dump those in the trash can. You uh, wash those out with water and clean them out, make sure there's no gunk in them, bring them back where they were. Um, you go into the tea room, sweep up, wash all the teacups, wipe off the table, fill up like the snack bowl and make sure the hot water pot is turned on if it's like the winter time. So you can do like hot tea and stuff when there's guests. Um, after you do all that, usually you, um, you sweep the pathway in the nursery. We have like kind of like a, like river stone, you know, like the small, like kind of nail sized pebbles down. So you sweep all those off the pathway. And then, uh, depending on the time of year, one of the, uh, one of the, the best deshi jobs is getting to put the fertilizer poo balls back on the trees. Um, we use like the small kind of round balls, not like the tea bags. And we have, uh, we have a Japanese bird, uh, it's a suzume. It's like a spa- type of sparrow basically. And so after kind of like a week or two of them being on the trees, they just develop a lovely amount of like grubs and worms in them. So the, yeah, so like pretty much every morning you kind of put like 25 or 30% of the fertilizer balls like back where they should be. Um, and then usually after that, you take a little spin around the garden, see how dry it is. You go report back to, uh, your oyakata and just kind of tell him like when you think you should water, he either gives you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And then after that, either he'll give you a job or if you have something going on in the workshop, um, then you'll just get to work. So you usually will like in the summertime in the heat of the summer, we'll work till about like 10, 10 30. And then usually around 10 30, unless it like rained or the weather's just a little funny, we'll water about everything, which we have the downstairs area. And we also have, uh, upstairs, which are trees for export. And then we also water like the family's home, which is just like garden trees and stuff. So usually you'll, you'll end up watering from about like 10, 10.30 till right about lunchtime. So then after that, you'll uh, take about like, usually we get about like 45 minutes or an hour for lunch. And then um, after that, uh, pretty much just go back to the workshop, work, and then usually about like two or three, you do a dry check again. And usually we'll just do with like the watering cans. And then after that, um, sometimes you'll take like a short little tea break and then whatever work you're doing for the rest of the day, you water once more. And then we usually close up, clean up again, and then leave about like five, five thirty ish, something like that. Do you ever get stuck watering after that? Or do the trees ever need water? Like at the height of summer? Um, if it's sometimes not a rainy the, time. Yeah. Sometimes in the height of the summer, um, we'll stay a little bit later to water or he'll just have us like water everything again, except for like white pines right before we leave. But it, it's usually not so big of an issue. I, I, I've been lucky though. We haven't gotten any bad heat waves. So apparently like the, um, the summer before I came was like really bad and they had like, they had an earthquake. There was like a heat wave that 
went up to like 108 or 109 degrees, which maybe, Whoa. maybe in California is like, you know, fairly common, but over here with all the humidity and everything, like people were like really, really reacting quite badly to that. The bonsai as well, of course. That's brutal. Yeah. That'd be anyone had noticed that that'd be rough. Yeah. No, it's not <laughs> fun. We have to put like, um, we have a shade cloth that's like about 30 or 40% for all the deciduous. We, we put that for everything. It's like a white shade cloth. We have on a pulley system, but then we also have, um, they're basically like, um, I don't know how you would, go. it's kind of like, um, like bamboo slats, not slats. They're small oh, pieces yeah. of bam- bamboo that string together. And, uh, this was another thing I was really surprised about, but uh, quite a few nurseries do this for the deciduous trees, actually. And we have kind of like an awning system. And you take these um, these bamboo like blinds, essentially something like that, and we place them just on top, like um, in the sky, like above the trees, and it really blocks out a lot of the sunlight. But like the um, the Japanese maples and tridents and things like that, they'll stay bright green even in the middle of the summer. Oh wow! Hmm. Yeah, so that it really helps out quite a bit. Like it sounds crazy, you're cutting out quite a bit of sunlight. But the nice thing with that system that we have in place with the pulleys and the bamboo is on a day where it's kind of rainy or overcast, uh, it's very easy to take them down. So every day, every day before we leave in the summer, we take those down. We, we, uh, take the pulleys back and then the bamboo parts we take off and we put on the ground or to the side of the trees. And then we put them back up the next day, usually, usually about like 10 AM. So they'll get like a couple hours of sunlight in the morning and then the rest of the The rest of the day, it's just filtered. What holds up those bamboo slats? Uh, so we basically have, um, <laughs> so um, it's actually a structure that was left over from my Oyakata's father. All of the uh, the customers' bonsai used to be what was, uh, they were placed in what was called the jail. And maybe <laughs> uh, maybe as you, as you know, back when bonsai was really in its height in, in Japan, there were a lot of people like trying to do like essentially um, herbicide bombs on. Oh. Yeah, there were people trying to do herbicide bombs at competition. So if you had like a nursery that was, you know, making more money than you or something in the same area, you go and drop a herbicide bomb. And um, so at Coca N, there's actually uh, they don't have it now. We have part of it to put the uh, the bamboo awning that i was talking about it's basically just kind of like metal pipes that make like a rectangle and the bamboo just sits on top of that and we secure it in place with wire but before that it was basically like um like a cage for the bonsai so no one could get in and it kind of went out to the street so no one could easily reach their hands in or something like that so that's where the uh that's where the bamboo sits we took the majority of that down or someone else did a few years prior to me but um, we still have part of the metal structure to hold up that bamboo. That seems like a cool way to do it. And there's a lot to be said for keeping trees healthy in summer, not just because it looks pretty, but it just means the leaves are more effective and you have greater overall health. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing, too, is like, um, you know, we're keeping these Japanese maples in these really, really shallow pots. That's Japanese maples, where they grow, like in Japan, usually um, you'll see them like along riverbeds. You'll see them kind of deep in the mountains, and the roots will go very, very deep into the ground. But you know, they're not designed to be in like a three-inch, four-inch deep pot by any means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
How much fertilizer so, do those trees get? Are you feeding them pretty much through the year or is it, is it a lighter touch on those like, cause you guys have some great big full deciduous trees. Yeah. There's a lot of really old ones. Um, we, we fertilize those a little bit later in the year. We don't wait until the leaves hurt harden off completely, but we don't fertilize them like directly as uh, spring starts. It really kind of depends um, each year. Of course, like the weather's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and then we usually leave them on for about like three weeks or so. And then we'll go through and kind of like change the fertilizer on the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we use, um, what is the fertilizer made of? It's um, rapeseed meal. I, something like that. I sent you the photo a while back. I forget oh, exactly right. what. In, in Japanese, it's called like uh, abura kasu, kasu, which is literally oh, just like oil, oil leftover. Meal. Oil yeah, meal. oil meal. That's oil what it meal. is. Yeah, it's like left. Kasu is like leftovers essentially. Uh-huh. So it's yeah, I guess it's like oil meal. But the um, the trees really like it. They react quite well to it. Um, and then we usually will do one more dose of that about kind of mid November, something like that. And then we usually won't fertilize again until like the springtime. Some stuff will add in the winter, but usually not. Okay. So for those big decisions, a big kind of a big course in spring, right before they're hardening off ish. And then again in fall. Hmm. But we'll, we'll fertilize them still throughout the growing season. Uh-huh. And we also use, um, we use some uh, liquid feed as well. It's, it's a chemical based one. I'm not sure. I can't read the label. Yeah entirely but uh something chemical based it looks something kind of similar to miracle grow i think but i'm not 100 percent sure well and that reminds me of something else which is you've seen day-to-day bonsai in the states you've done it yourself and now you've been living it in japan for a couple of years what are we not doing over here like what are some things that you're just seeing or that are commonplaces to the bonsai world in your life now that you just you're not seeing or you didn't get to see over here <laughs> whether it's a um, habit or a care for a tree or a level of detail or just whatever comes to mind. I'd say one thing definitely, and not everyone teaches this, but the like, you know, branches growing down or growing up are always bad. Like uh, that is something, of course, very strong upward growing branches on most trees. You should try and get rid of if they're very strong. But a lot of times, like, especially on something like a shinpaku that's very easily manipulated and bendable. You know, if you have a branch like that's kind of growing under a little bit, you can rotate the branch slightly and you could use that as a side branch very, very easily. And I see a lot of people cutting off like very usable growth on some trees that I feel like over here we would probably keep as long as it's not going to cause like an issue. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of trees over like... Yeah, yeah, no, you said it yourself. I think that's <laughs> um definitely. Um, you know, especially a lot of old like deciduous trees too. You'll just kind of look at them in person or in the books, like over here I mean, and you'll see that kind of outside ramification and then you'll look in and you'll see it kind of like the primary branch structure and you'll see all these branches that <laughs> maybe in the west we'd call these like not perfect and you cut them off and then you just keep doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that and the tree doesn't really get anywhere so i think right. like sometimes you kind of just have to like uh you kind of have to let the tree be a tree <laughs> sometimes well i had a funny chat with a guy last week where we were t- he was saying 
Well, you know, theoretically, when you have a maple, you can let it grow out, cut it, you'll get two branches, cut it again, get two more branches. And in four years, we should all have super full trees. But I don't ever see that. And <laughs> yeah, I've really yeah. taken it to heart. And I've been thinking about it a lot this week. And as I've been looking at photos of trees in Japan or in Japanese show books and seeing what counts as a good tree, even in Japan, as I'm thinking, well, you need to get pretty significant growth before you can expect a single branch to split into two. And yeah. you need everything to be super healthy and you need everything to be super balanced. And you can get split, split, split if you've got a young tree that you're growing super duper hard, but that's not going to give you the refinement you want. And so it's I've, I've been thinking about that. And when I think of those big trees that you're talking about over there, it happens by keeping a lot of imperfect branches over many, many years and repeating yep. and being thankful for what you get. Maybe you only get one that year. Maybe you get none. Maybe you do get a split that year. And there is there is definitely like some of those branches, even if you do want to keep them just for the sake of kind of you know having more branches so the tree starts to put out shorter internodes or something like that. There are some branches that still you do need to get rid of as quickly as possible because they will cause problems. Um, Two other things I wanted to touch on that uh, ah. definitely I don't see people pay attention to in the U.S. a lot. And this is more of a thing with deciduous trees, um, but it definitely does come into play with kind of any species is um, hasho, hasho, like a uh, leaf type. We, mm. That's what we say, uh, what they say in Japanese is hasho, but um, leaf type is very important. Um, you know, you can take like, I see a lot of people, they'll have like trident maples with these very very nice trunks but they'll have like buds on them that are the size of my pinky finger and the leaves will be the size of my hand and you know maybe you can make a good tree with that in 70 years or something like maybe. that May like um uh, i was talking to uh to i think juan once he said like a lot of the old trident maples at like aichian uh the not all of them, but there's like a few that aren't like a perfect leaf type, but they're still beautiful trees. But the other thing to think about is some of those are like maybe 70, 80 years older or more. Yeah. So if you do like, you know, in America, we're kind of playing catch up to some other country. We're playing catch up to Japan, which is in, which has been doing this quite a while. And we're also playing catch up to European countries that can easily import these trees. So if you do want to kind of catch up like the level of trees, you should kind of you should use those things like leaf type to your advantage. If you're, I remember one day we had this really, really nice trident maple in the garden. And, um, it obviously came from somewhere else, but I asked my Okasan, like, um, do you know who grew this tree? And <laughs> I'll never forget his answer. What he said, he was like, ah, oh, the tree grew itself. Like, what? <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he was like, oh, of course someone grew the tree, but this hosho, this leaf type is very, very nice. Like if you have a leaf type like this, the tree will kind of just grow itself within reason. Of course, you're going to have to go in, you're going to have to do pruning, you're going to have to remove unsightly branches, dead bits, things of that sort. But as long as you use those, you know, those trees that naturally kind of put out lots of sideward growth, they put out fine growth, they don't put lots of buds on the trunk that you constantly have to like get rid of um those are really going to make a tree much nicer than something that always wants to have like water sprouts and things like that yeah 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 take cuttings from that one yeah yeah sadly <laughs> it's it's not here anymore <laughs> yeah exactly 
Have there been any species that you've really fallen for since you've been in Japan? Ah, yes. Uh, Stewardia. Stewardia. Uh-huh. Um, the one thing, though, that I'm learning about Stewardia and some deciduous trees in general is uh, Stewardia went through a period in Japan where they were very popular. I don't know exactly when that was, but I want to say about 30 years ago. It was kind of like the height of it. Uh-huh. And uh, one thing like people have learned in Japan is like they're not very stable um once they get old they're very easy to lose branches and things of that sort so they're not like uh you don't see them as much anymore i'm sure you've seen that from going to kokofu they're very quite rare to see like big mature uh stewardia compared to like trident maple or elm or japanese maple or something like that but and a lot of those stewardia are surprisingly clunky even in kokofu like it's actually hard to find big graceful stewardia I don't know if they exist, honestly. Okay, well, that's good to hear because I see a lot um, of big trunks and I see a lot of fine branches, but the trunks rarely have the movement and the taper into those primary and secondary branches that you want to see. That's hard to find. Yeah, yeah they just produce so much callus. I've heard of some people using like tin foil, aluminum foil to mm-hmm. like, uh, it's kind of like a duck, duck sealant, like aluminum foil to kind of make sure the callus doesn't produce too much. But I, I've never tried it. I've always used um, just like, you know, the the putty, kind of like the the duck seal putty, the gray stuff. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. The cutto pasto. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're all going to be growing Stewartia. What do you, uh, what's one thing to keep in mind at the liner stage? You know, when you've got like a four inch something and you're just starting <laughs> out, what, it, what, uh, what's, what foot should we be starting out on with uh, Stewartia? I really haven't had much experience like growing them <coughs> from seed or cutting. Um, well, what mistake imagine- do you not want to see? That's another way of thinking of it. Okay, yeah, that's good. This might be a little bit uh, later on, but when you're cutting, you you can't really do like a flat cut with those. It always has to be like a little bit kind of spherical. You have to bite into the trunk a little bit or you're going to get way too much callus. Right, right, right. Maybe maybe in California, uh, it might be a little bit different because you guys don't have that humidity. Um, but I've found like here, I have um, I have one, like a little kind of Texas-sized shohin that I've been playing with. And um, I found if you don't, if you just make like a flat cut on the trunk, you'll get way too much callus. Yeah. yeah. It's, Michael had a good a trick for problem. us on that. Years ago, he told me, uh, make your cut put your paste on it and then wrap it all really tight in grafting tape or something. And ah. much to my amazement, not only did it heal faster, but it kind of stayed within constraints and it healed remarkably flat to the cut to the point where the next time I did it, I wanted to start shaping the cuts a little differently. Interesting. Yeah. I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying with like the aluminum foil, but I've never tried either of those. I want to try it one day, but I, I've seen it used with a lot of species in Japan. I haven't played with it either, but a really common approach is you put this, it's not really a paste as much as it's like a wax like goo. Kind of like the, ah, it's like the kind of. And then you, it's in a green. Yeah, I forget what it is. It's like a tea green. Yeah, it's like a tea green kind of color. Yeah, tea green. Yeah, it's kind of a yellowish green, a more chartreuse. It's a. And I, and I know what the, the container looks like. And so you put the goop in there and then you cover it with the foil. And that's a lot of people use that recipe. Yeah. I, you know, I've been pretty, um, I don't know. I, I may, maybe call it old fashioned or I just haven't tried out other cut paste, but I, I really like the just, you know, 
putty cut paste a lot and then i'll use of course like the the top gen for like azaleas and horn beams i i guess honestly maybe that's just something i got from boone <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's just something that got kind of stuck in my head and it worked so i haven't bothered uh trying out other recipes yet but i'll have to try that if i see that cup paste sometime soon yeah i've been i'm curious to actually do the experiments i've been talking about for years and see how the different species interact with the different uh, fluids in there well so i'm one thing i'm curious about is i haven't heard as much about this lately is do you get to do much work on site at customer gardens or other kinds of gardens or is it mostly nursery work at coconut um most of the time we will drop trees off like a customer's house, but most of the time we either go to pick them up and we bring them back to Koken or they drop them back. They drop them at Koken and then we'll drop them back at their house typically, which personally I prefer <laughs> working yeah. on site. Working on site can be really stressful, you know, yeah. like, and the one thing I've noticed that's kind of funny is you'll have these like clients that have these ridiculous bonsai gardens and expensive trees. They never have a proper place to work though. <laughs> <laughs> that's not their it's, problem no it's not but it's just funny you know they'll have these like that like multi-thousand dollar trees and then you're working on like kieran crates or something of that sort yeah. it's kind of uh yeah it's very ironic to say the least but yeah that's, like you said that's not not their problem that's funny and you know i'm curious i don't know if you've had much exposure to this have you picked up anything about what it's like to be a bonsai professional in japan uh, it sounds it sounds really dangerous now to be honest um oh, how so? you know uh there it kind of seems like japan's almost like at the whim of china uh, like a lot like a lot of stuff is i uh, you know it's just it's a business over here i'm not saying that people don't love it people still enjoy what they do and they still like bonsai a lot but it's a lot it's definitely a lot different than how we view it in the west it's not as much of a a privilege to do bonsai i think as it is like in the west um another thing uh definitely that i noticed is i I thought everyone over here kind of like thought bonsai was like kind of cool or something like that but it's (laughs) no everyone like you tell people you do bonsai and the reaction is just kind of like usually you get like a japanese like eh and then they tell you how they thought it was just like a grandpa like an oji-san hobby and then that's (laughs) kind of the height of the conversation um but uh, it, I think um, there's two big differences in Japan, like as far as Japanese professionals. There's a big difference between the Japanese professional in a family-owned business and one who's just starting out or did something by himself. I think it's a lot more stable as like a family business over here. Which stands to reason. Um, just in the sense like, you know, bonsai is like... Um, you need time to kind of build up your your portfolio or your your sales items or anything of that sort if you're selling trees of course um but right now china is definitely like one of the biggest customers like you can see that kind of all across japan yeah mm. yeah you notice it at the sales areas for sure well they they actually they go to they go to auctions now too even oh like wow the, yeah yeah, they go to auctions. So um, pretty much you'll go to an auction and, you know, in the past, the auctions essentially existed as a chance for professionals to sell trees to other professionals. I'd say close to 70%, if not more, depending on the auction, just goes to China. Wow. 
That's a big change. But you know, a lot of the stuff that's going to auction is not always top tier stuff. It's no, it's the, it's the entire gamut depending on the auction. Yeah, it can be good stuff. Sometimes it's just stuff people want to get rid of and make a buck. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, being a professional in Japan seems a little uh, frightening, definitely. Especially with like the traveling uh, being difficult right now as well. A lot is of people triple, is that tricky right now in Japan. Uh, you have to do like a two week quarantine, I guess, when you come back in, um, and you can only go from the airport. And uh, it has to be uh, a personal vehicle. You can't use train, taxi, or bus or anything of that sort. So you have wow. to get picked up. Yeah, and then the, I'm pretty. Sh- I don't. I'm not 100% sure, but I think the person that picks you up might also have to do the quarantine process. You can quarantine in your own home, though, I guess. But, yeah, it's really... Well, for professionals that rely on client work, that's hard. Yeah. Because there are are quite a few Japanese professionals that do uh, traveling and, like, client work to other Asian countries and to European countries as well. There's quite a few that do that now. So, yeah, it's definitely difficult. Um, trying to think. Uh, so Kokofu this year, there's a lot of people that aren't doing Kokofu in the professional community. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So quite. I I think we're we're not going this year. Actually, we didn't do. Taekwon Ten was canceled. Um, Gafuten's still going on. I'll try and I'm gonna go visit Gafuten in uh, January. January. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very uh, lonely year for the the show world. There is um there's a famous outdoor exhibit going on at a temple in Kyoto that I'm gonna try and visit today though actually it looks quite fun I don't know oh, have Daitoku, you seen Daitokuji yes, yeah. yes 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 it's only like an hour away by train I can't wait I mean Daitokuji is the coolest temple complex uh, I've that's... never been actually oh, I, wow. I've been to yeah I've been to the Kinkakuji the Golden Temple which is uh-huh. kind of neighbors with it but I've never been to that one but I saw the bonsai exhibitions going on so I. Started rubbing my hands together and uh, got really excited yesterday when I saw that. Well, Some beautiful, uh, beautiful trees. Of course, good luck if you're going this time of year because it is the absolute one of the busier places on earth right now. But with no tourism, it might be different yeah. this year. This might be the time. You know, yes and no. I went to, um, <laughs> for a while it was, um, but I went to, Ah, uh, what is it called? The Kyo Mizu Dera? Do you know yes. that one? That's the yeah. big, famous, beautiful one up on the hill. Stunning maples. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I went there to catch kind of like the the final stint of fall color. Uh, last week. Uh huh. I think last week. Yeah, yeah. I think last week. I went there. It was really beautiful. Enjoyed it a ton. But um, it was packed. Like, I don't think I could go there during normal tourism times like i'm not much of a crowd person like uh trains and stuff like in japan is definitely uh taken some time for me <laughs> the uh, daitokuji is really cool in that it's this big plot with maybe you know 20 30 uh sub temples and oh, most wow. of them are closed to the public at any given time and if you're lucky uh, uh some special ones might be open and so a lot of people will, you know, that you may go every year for years and years and never see two thirds of the complexes because, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of famous ones are always open. 
And it's really interesting because they're famous for very different things. And, um, you know, Seiji Morimai does the Genko Kai show there. Ah, uh, yes. With, uh, you know, you can rent the temple more or less. And uh, I, I probably cannot financially. You and I that, probably but... cannot do this, but wouldn't that be nice? And so, <laughs> yeah, and so that's a me. fun uh, option, you know, when you can see bones in these places. But I know in the tea world, some of the headquarters for the uh, the tea schools are in Daitokuji and Wow. I saw some some gardens that are just tiny. Some of them are just stunning. Some of them were um, just kind of where the people are working day to day. So, oh, that'll be really fun if you get out there. Yeah, the pictures looked cool. Yeah, have you you seen them online? Yeah, yeah, it looks really beautiful. I haven't. Uh, I'd say most. I have. I don't think I've seen any of those trees in person before. So it uh -huh. should be. Uh, uh, it should be a very, very good experience. I haven't really gotten a chance to do like the you know japan tour since i came over here uh initially like as an apprentice i was kind of like put into the nursery and only gone to see like um a few nurseries kind of far away at least oh okay yeah that's what i love doing is seeing how other gardens run because as you know they run such a gamut of uh mm. just every which way you can imagine they're very different from each other yeah i really want to try and take um definitely take like a trip like to some of the nurseries more towards like Tokyo and stuff like that eventually. But yeah. whenever there's time, maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. Maybe someday. Well, I'm so glad you had the time for us this morning. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was, it was really great to talk story. to you guys. It was nice to, nice to meet you and nice to talk to you, Jonas. It was a, a very fun time. I enjoyed it. Glad to hear yeah, all is going well. Where should people uh, follow along with what you're doing? Um, so I guess the best place for now would just be uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, on Instagram, it's just uh, at Moonlight Bonsai. And um, if you, um, on Facebook, I also have a page. It's Moonlight Bonsai as well. And um, you could also add me on my personal page on Facebook. If I have space for friends, it's uh, Kaya Moon. Awesome. Should, I don't think there's too many other bonsai kai munis on Facebook, so <laughs> it should be fairly easy to find if you uh, if you have any trouble, just get in contact with me somehow. <laughs> yep, and I can say it's a great place to follow along some really great work because you guys do somehow have a wonderful flow of beautiful trees coming in and out of that garden. Thank you. It's a pleasure to work with them. <laughs> well, awesome. Will you take care of yourself? Uh, anything else, John? I don't think so. Thanks so much, Kaya. Great to meet you and look forward to yeah, seeing you seeing your work in the future. Awesome. Thank you, John. It was nice talking to you and nice to meet you as well. Look forward to speaking with you guys again sometime later. Yeah. Do it again. All right. Thanks, Kaya. Cool. All right. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. Also, the advertisements are fake. If I got a little stuttery towards the end, I'm kind of freezing, actually. Let me turn on the heat oh, Get real a quick. jacket. Turn on the heater.